welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, today we talk about health tech investing, and my guest is Gemma Bloman. She's a VC at Creandum, and that's a half a billion fund, and they invest in, among other things, health tech and tech more broadly. Um, she's also an angel investor, so she's invested in 10 or so companies herself, so she knows a thing or two about uh, obviously investing from a personal perspective and passion investing, I want to call it, but also taking care more financially on the VC side and that side of investing too. Creandum invests in seed and series A. They do tickets up to 20 million. So if you want to know uh, how to get money from a fund like that, what they might be looking for, you're going to find that information in this one. Also, Gemma knows a thing or two about growing a tech company too. She was one of the first people at Uber. Uh, She's ex-Yale, INSEAD, McKinsey, and she was COO at Elder as well, a big health tech company, helped them raise a series B there. And she was there through all the COVID stuff too. So uh, this one is a great episode if you're interested in health tech investing, great episode if you're a founder and you want to know what someone like this looks for. And if you're after a bit of angel investing cash, if you're after a bit of fund cash, if you're at seed or series A level, have a listen to this one. Enjoy. Yeah, Gemma, it's a pleasure. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, James. I really appreciate you having me. It's, uh, you're very welcome. Yeah, it's an honor. You're very welcome. I'm intrigued. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today? Because uh, it sounds like you guys have got operations in quite a few different places. Yes, we do. Um, I'm speaking to you from London. I'm actually currently at home. Um, that's just because our, our current office is quite busy while we are awaiting moving into our new uh, office location in the middle of Soho. Oh, very um, nice. But we, we also have offices in Berlin, Stockholm, and San Francisco. Um, and while I do frequent those occasionally, I am based in, in London. I'm originally Dutch, uh, which some of your listeners might have picked up on <laughs> already by now. But uh, I am I am based in London. Excellent. Um, well, Gemma, listen, as I say, absolute pleasure to have you on. You've got an incredible background as an operator turned now investor, both as a VC and an angel investor. So definitely keen to pick your brain on a few of those different things. And um, yeah, Crandom and setting up the London office and everything that you're doing um, with the firm. Super excited to hear about your story. And yeah, for me and our listeners, why don't you tell us the long version? The long version. Well, I guess since uh, since it's a health tech podcast, I can start like a really really long time ago. Um, so I grew up in the Netherlands. Um, my parents uh, were uh, you know very very middle class Dutch, but my mom actually worked in healthcare and, and she still does. She works at a charity um, that represents the rights of of deaf children. She's actually retiring this summer, um, so I'm going oh. to her retirement party. She worked at the same place for, for 35 years. But yeah, I guess that's what kind of piqued my my original interest in healthcare, as well as the fact that she's actually handicapped and and she's uh, yeah lived with with a with a handicap for for 40 years, including my entire lifetime, and that has exposed me to to the healthcare system a lot over the over the course of my life. Um, and has made me, uh, yeah, very interested. I guess to to make a positive impact in mm-hmm. that space. I uh, grew up in Netherlands. Left when I was eighteen. I studied at Yale in the US. Um, actually studied psychology, uh, but also like a, a wide range of other things. And then afterwards, um, did not go into healthcare, but ended up um, as as many from my university did uh, at McKinsey in consulting. Did that for about two and a half years. Um, realized it probably wasn't my long-term cup of tea. The type of clients we worked for it didn't necessarily inspire me. And ended up doing my MBA at INSEAD, lived in Singapore. And then, um, yeah, was deciding whether to go back to, to McKinsey or or try something else. And, and that's when I when I first, I guess, got got um, got interested in tech, in tech and really joining a technology company. Um, and I, I was talking to some of the bigger companies, but I also ended up speaking to an alum from, from INSEAD who had just joined Uber in London, um, to, to really get operations going there. And she and I spoke and that was now, I think 
almost close to 10 years ago, probably nine and a half years ago. And, and she said, Hey, you know, why don't you not go back to McKinsey and instead join me? We're looking for people with kind of an analytical background who are not afraid to roll up their sleeves. Um, because this thing is going to take off and and we're going to grow. Um, and I ended up joining the team in London, moved there. Um, and yeah, I've been here ever since. So it's, it's, uh, it's around nine years now. And in the first few years that I was at Uber, the team grew and uh, the, the business operations there grew more than 10 times. I led a few different teams there, mainly focusing on, on growth and expansion both within um, kind of the London region, but I also managed one of our um, one of our uh, regions within the UK for a while, the Northeast. And and during my final year there, I also led Women of Uber, which is uh, which is kind of our ERG. So I was involved in all the kind of interesting things that went down there um, in relation to to Travis, who ended up leaving, and then working with the, the senior leadership across um, across the whole firm to to build bridges and and repair, I guess, from a culture perspective. On the back of that, I, I ended up leaving end of 2017 and I joined Elder, a home care marketplace, very much inspired, I guess, by the, by the experience with my mom, who's a, who's a single mom and at some point will need full-time care. The idea of enabling people to grow old in their own home um, really appealed to me and, and I ended up yeah, working there as the chief operating officer for three and a half years, helping them scale, um, also raise our Series B. So I I know what it's like to sit on the other side of the fundraising table, hmm. um, and yeah, go through that process. And and during that time, you know, COVID hit. Working in elderly care over COVID uh, was felt like a very, I guess, important contribution to the to the whole. Yeah, strategy that was going down, but also not necessarily the most um, fun place to be at that point. So in my spare time, I started doing some angel investing and, and working with early stage founders um, that were working on impactful topics, helping them uh, get their business off the ground. And I ended up angel investing in, in around 10 or so companies, primarily in the um, climate and health tech space. So some of the the health tech companies I invested in, for example, like the Lowdown in London, uh, Jude also in London, Exact Health in in Germany, um, and yeah, I worked I worked together with those founders um, and and realized that that was so much fun, like working with early stage founders, helping their dreams become a reality. I felt that my background um, was very valuable, and I could help them both at the business building, but also it's an intro- from an introductions perspective. And that's what then ultimately inspired me to consider moving into VC mm. full time. Um, and that wasn't something that I really ever considered. I thought it was going to be more similar to the consulting experience where you work, you know, on a lot of spreadsheets and and not necessarily get to get to be closely involved. Uh, but I realized that when you do early stage venture, it's actually quite different. And you work very closely together with founders and you actually get to work on incredibly inspirational topics and, and ideas and, and be part of that journey. So then I ended up meeting the Cranham team uh, two and a half years ago. And Cranham, as James, as you already mentioned, it's a it's an early stage VC fund. Um, we do seed in Series A, tickets up to 20 million. Um, been around for 20 years, actually. And uh, and before I joined, the team was uh, very fortunate to to partner with some incredible companies, as uh, as you already mentioned a few. Um, and then I was really inspired by the people I met there, by the founders I spoke to who had worked with Grandem in the past, and and how well they referenced. And it was so incredibly important for me to join a fund that was on the side of the founder. Um, and, and that really was there kind of through trials and interrelations and, and ultimately added value, um, in a positive way. So they, at that point, were looking to open a London office, um, and hire somebody who had ties into the local angel and, and VC community. So that worked out perfectly. And, and I ended up joining them in the summer of 2021, um, one of their GPs moved over and, and we opened the office here. Um, we're now 10 people on the ground. 
it's been an uh, incredible two years and yeah, we're about 15 companies in now in London. And the first one, is, as, as you already mentioned, was Depop in 2016. Um, and in the past few years, since we've opened the office, we've I think added six companies um, to our portfolio here. So it's uh, slowly, uh, but it's very steadily growing. Um, I just came back from maternity leave a few months back. So I was out for the fall, but now very much uh, back into the swing of things. What a story. The first thing I want to say, actually, is that it sounds like in your career, you've now, you've actually found VC from not the traditional, oh, hey, I want to be a VC. You actually found VC through, first of all, being an operator, which I just feel is incredibly important for especially the type of VC that you want to be a very hands-on, able to help. You seem to get enjoyment from actually being very useful to these founders. It seems to be what you enjoy, that feedback loop of actually being able to add value. The reasons that you like Creandum is because they add value there on the side of the founder and those things I will interrogate in a second. But um, yeah, just it's, it's a really nice kind of story arc that you've got to your career there of actually providing loads of value to the companies that you've been part of and then actually genuinely wanting to pass that value back and actually finding your way to early stage venture uh, to where you are now and by no means at the end of your career but certainly an exciting exciting part of it um i want to take you back though i want to go all the way back to the earliest or one of the earliest points of your career here um because i'm nosy and just because i think this is this is really interesting you obviously you did psychology at yale you went to mckinsey relatively uninspired by the work there um but then did the MBA and uh, INSEAD. I mean, this reads like a who's who of like places to get your education. This, I mean, Yale, INSEAD, et cetera. But um, I won't dive, I won't dive too much into, into that. I was a nerd. You must I have a heck honest. of a network is all I'm saying after this, honestly, like your classmates must be running the entire planet. But um, right, Uber. Tell me about Uber, because this is interesting. You you brought into Uber at a really early stage. I think I read somewhere that it was, you know, double digits of employees and and up to 250 or something. But you've you were part of a really quick growth phase of Uber there. And you were, you know, you were over growth and expansion. So, you know, certainly in part or probably quite a lot due to yourself and your work there. Tell me about a company like Uber and growing a company like Uber so quickly. And I'm interested in how that relates to the advice that you now give in health tech. What did you learn from that period in Uber, that fast growth, that expansion, that sort of dominating technology, almost like generation defining technology? Um, Yeah. Tell me about it. I'm super interested in this. Yeah, great question. I mean, I always say that I I learned some of the best things about growth and some of the worst things about growth while while I was at Uber. And and I try to, I guess, leverage both of those um, (laughs) in in the advice that I now give. I think from from the good side, I think some of the things that Uber did very, very well that are still, um, you know, benefiting the company today is, first of all, it, it hired exceptional people. And it was really, I think at that point, globally, when it started growing, the, the like number one career destination for talented individuals, um, because it actually gave people a lot of autonomy. And it wasn't like a, a tech company where at that point where the only interesting jobs were really uh, engineering and otherwise you you had to go into sales. It was a company where you could own a PL and you could... Uh, you know, be in charge of of very complex problems and, and like growth areas in in many many different countries and and really um, yeah tackle very very exciting topics and and as a result Uber was able to attract some of the best talent I think globally in in each of the market that it operated in um, and I think that's one of the things that that they did really well. Like I think one of the success factors um, of Uber's expansion and, and growth was that they decided to to hire talent locally and and really give power to those teams 
to execute and to do what worked well in that region and to um and to to grow within the local culture and and within the local cities um and if they had tried to do all of that from headquarters in San Francisco, I don't think they would have been as successful. So in terms of how that translates into the advice that we give to companies now, like for example, a lot of the companies that we partner with in Europe um, around Series A are thinking around how do we expand into the US? Um, yeah. And a lot of the companies that we that we partner with at seed stage are thinking, how do I expand into other European <laughs> countries? Um, and one of the key pieces of advice that we often give is, is hire locally have a team there. Maybe if you move to the US and it's going to be an important market for you, maybe actually one of the founders should move there. But have a presence and and think about how you build up the, the team there, the office there, and the culture and and how you maintain that across um yeah, a, across the ocean. And and I think that's that is something that Uber did very well. Mm. And and really keeping the bar high as well. So for example, at at Uber I was part of this task force which is called bar raisers and it's it was people that were well performing in in um yeah in specific regions that actually helped interview in other regions so where you didn't have a vested interest in making sure that you know the the seats were filled but where the only role that you had on the interview panel was to make sure that we kept the bar consistently high across geographies and that we only hired great talent um and if you look now, like Uber alums are everywhere. Like, I mean, Kranum has partnered with an ex-Uber company called Timberhub in um, in London, in, uh, in Amsterdam. Like, so many of my friends went on to start their own companies. A lot of them are are working in VC. Mm-hmm. I, it's people that I work with on a on a day to day basis. Um, but they're they're now everywhere in the ecosystem. And I think I think that's one thing. Um, that I've taken with me throughout my career. It's just the the incredible importance of hiring the right people and the best people and and enabling them to do their best. Now, some of the things I think on the flip side that 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 I learned about hyper growth that um I try to caution people against are are one is like how like I think Uber wasn't necessarily always the most capital efficient in terms of how they deployed their money, because they always had so much money that they had raised that they didn't necessarily always have to think about the ROI of the initiatives that they implemented, the ROI of additional headcount that they added. Um, and as a result, I think it took a long time and and maybe they're still in the process of actually finding out what the leanest way is to run the operations. And in a, in a company that is a low fundamentally a low margin business and where you're competing with other companies that that might have more efficient capital structures that actually matters a lot um so that's why one of the the pieces of advice that i now give founders that i partner with is don't raise too much too soon and if you do raise like make sure you have a clear plan of how you deploy that money and that you only use what you need rather than finding ways to spend the money um when you don't actually need it because you want to build an efficient capital structure over time. And and if you blow up too much too soon, it's going to be really, really hard to change that over time. Um, And then one of the other pieces, I guess, of like learnings that, uh, that I had from, from Uber was how important it is to, to work with regulators and to make sure that, um, that you work within the system. Um, and again, something from a healthcare perspective that I spend a lot of time thinking about is making sure that even in the most innovative business models and the most innovative healthcare innovations, we can make sure to um, to bring those to market in a, in a compliant way with the support of, of regulators um, rather than necessarily in an adversarial relationship that doesn't benefit anyone. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing that I saw from from Uber that I that I take with me is how from an HR perspective, it is really important to scale your HR and people function at the same pace as you scale the rest of the organization uh, to ensure that you really um yeah stay on top of um 
potential issues that may arise there and and that you train your managers well and that you have the right escalation mechanisms in in case something goes wrong um the right people to speak to in case um issues occur um because it is sometimes if you're very very fast growing very easy to forget about some of these like more backbone functions of the company like hr like fun like finance etc but the sooner you lay those foundations and this like the the more you skill those with the other functions the more you kind of protect yourself against um yeah potential downside in the future mm. um and i think uber showed how if you don't do that well that can potentially um yeah end really badly and be very costly to clean up yeah, and some remarkable similarities there actually to healthcare, especially when you talk about regulation and working with the regulators. I think there's so much, there's so many technologies at the moment, particularly as we look at just the the rapid expansion of AI into literally everything, and particularly in large language models and and everything there in terms of how regulators have to work with. And actually, I've seen some stuff from Sam Altman actually that that he he really is trying to help for well seemingly anyway help with regulation with what he's doing he's he's openly calling for it he's writing drafts of what regulation could look like and seems to want to be really part of that and certainly taking heed of of what you're saying which is to work with regulators and actually bring them with you it's not just a you know, profit at all cost model here. It's actually like, you know, we're part of a, as I said before, a generation defining technology that needs to be regulated in the right way. And I think in healthcare, we can feel like that a lot too. You know, we can feel that these technologies can do so much. And actually, even the founders of those businesses are people too that have good intentions, despite them having, you know, many people they have to please with their investors and their shareholders and everything else. In the day, I think people are generally good and call me naive for saying that but i do i do think that and actually the founders of these companies are too and they do want to work with regulators to help that stuff i think what you said about hiring is interesting as well and hiring exceptional people and hiring locally i've done a lot of thinking recently about you know mission vision values culture and actually how you how you live your values and how you actually uh, create a culture based on those values. And I think it was interesting where you said you have bar raisers and I love this concept bar raisers. And we, we all know these people in the organization that, that are obsessed about high standards for themselves, for their team, for the organization. They have high organizational loyalty. They want that for the whole company and actually to then take them to another geography, where, as you say, they have no vested interest in the quality of the team there in their day to day, other than just for the company more broadly and actually helping them hire locally. And I think that is an interesting element as well, just hiring locally and actually accepting that you can build culture based on a new geography that's appropriate for that geography and those people. And so those people can feel a culture that they have built and that they are part of, albeit specifically with bar raisers uh, strategically placed to hire them or even helicoptered in, dare I say, to like kick that off. But um, I think there's so many interesting concepts there. And we're doing an event actually about scaling to the US. We're doing that with KHP Ventures um, in a few weeks' time at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital with there's quite a lot of companies going. And, and we're talking with Cedar Sinai, actually, they're coming over to um, do some stuff at that event. And we're talking about scale and we're talking about moving over to the, over to the US. And so much, so much of this shines in me with some of the prelim work we've done for that, you know. Um, but anyway, before I lose myself into that, I want to go back to your journey. You moved to Elder and COO of Elder, I believe. Tell me about that. Yeah, so my my role at Elder was quite broad. So I guess in from the beginning, the, the COO title is like one that, that can encompass so many different things. And it very much <laughs> depends on the company and, and the relationship that you have with the CEO in terms of what functions sit under you. Um, it can be one of those where you, you can wear a lot of different hats um, uh, also across the company journey. So I wore a lot of different hats um, that changed pretty much, um, you know, every six months or so. So for a while I managed people until we hired a fantastic people leader who, um, you know, who, who could do things much better than I did. Um, for a while I managed data and similar story. Um, 
And, um, but I think there's a, there was a core, like a, a few core operational functions that, uh, that I managed until the end. And first of all, that was the whole infrastructure around CARES. Um, and, and for us, like CARES, you know, was everything from hiring and, and you know, uh, the training and ensuring that our CARES were well equipped to, to do the work that, that they were doing to the way that, um, you know, they were supported and, um, how we help them in you know, the cares that elder are self-employed. So ensuring right. that they had the right tools and, and, and such to do their work was very important. Um, but there was also a big logistical element because they had to, they had to go and be matched to, to people, um, sometimes very last minute that needed care and it couldn't be, be alone without care. Um, and then be, uh, you know, helped to to get across the country uh to maybe a remote place in in scotland um within a day so i also managed the matching uh pieces there and, and the marketplace pieces um and then the clinical pieces we even though we we didn't get involved in the clinical care ourselves we did have a clinical team of course to ensure that we had the right safeguarding and, and clinical policies and and standards in place and everything that's that's related to that. Um, so yeah, I would say it was a it was a very wide role. I, I really enjoyed it because it was so many different pieces. Um, mm-hmm. I got to work with like really exceptional people. Um, it's also really fulfilling to 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 work with carers um, and people that that work in care. Oftentimes, do that. Um, really because they want to give back um, and because they value caring for elderly people and, and helping make those last years of your lives better. Yeah. Um, and, and even though it is incredibly tough, like I couldn't be a carer. Mm. It takes so much from you emotionally, mm. um, energy wise. Um, and, and yeah, the, the, the opportunity to to day in and day out interact mm. with with people who dedicated their lives to to this profession was very inspiring. Um, well, I think particularly me. as well because you have that emotional connection to that type of work because of your mum as well and her handicap and and you know you mentioned like forty years you know it it, it must have been. It must have been an interesting time, an interesting role, an interesting time, an interesting company to be part of, an interesting sector to be part of, just because, as I say, you must have you must have felt quite connected to that. And I think, you know, when, when you can connect purpose with your work, you can often see a heck of a lot of synergy, can't you? And it seems to have, well, it certainly hasn't, hasn't done you any harm, has it, in terms of feeling more connected to the work and that kind of thing, I imagine. But yeah, I don't know. Was, is that something that chimes with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, purpose um, has been very important throughout my career. Um, and it's it's probably one of the most important themes in my life. Like I always think, how can I how can I have the most impact and how can I have the most impact in this world? And um, you know, one of the reasons why I I joined McKinsey was because I wanted to learn to have the skills to be able to have impact in the future. And yeah, and I I joined Uber because I felt that Uber was transforming the world in a way that very few companies at the time were. And I still feel that the the impact that Uber had, even though in the media may may not always be portrayed in a positive way, like Uber and like provided employment for hundreds of thousands of yeah. people and provided a safe and cheaper way to get home um, for many, 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 many millions of people in, in, including you know women like myself who might not have yeah. had a safe way to get home uh late at night for people like my mom who live if you live in a suburb um and you can't hail a taxi then you know 10 years ago there was no way to be able to get around because taxis were just you know not there <laughs> to, to, to uh, push of a button and also now, like as an investor, like I think a lot about the impact that our companies have across the world. And 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 I feel that enabling companies that helping com- like transformational companies grow and and you know build up their footprint in the world is one of mm. the most impactful things that that I can do 
in my career yeah. with the current the skill set that I have. I mean, there's, there's other pieces to it too. As an as a VC fund, a lot of the money that you invest uh, or all the money you invest comes from other investors, mm-hmm. and most of our investors are um, pension funds and and endowments, um, and you know the Nobel Foundation and such like very um, reputable investors and causes that um, I feel very proud to to represent as an investor. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that for me, impact and purpose are probably the driving factors throughout mm. my entire career um, and how I think about how I want to live my life. Yeah. It's funny because I was going to, I was going to ask you your thesis actually, because I'm going to move on to your angel investing now, because, you know, to talk about purpose, as they say, you know, investors pick the world we live in next. And it's an incredibly, incredibly privileged position to be doing so. And actually people can look at how they want to see the world and they can then choose the companies that they want based on their own purpose. And I don't know, that side of angel investing has always appealed to me less the you're investing other people's money in the VC side, if I'm being honest. Um, but certainly being able to, you know, make the impact yourself with with the money that that you have. And as I say, being able to at least somewhat potentially pick the world we live in next if you're if you're good at your job anyway and you manage to do that well. But yeah, I'm interested. So you mentioned angel investing being really fun and you equated that to I think being valuable and based on your background, you could not only help them practically with advice about how to run their company, but actually with introductions based on the network that you have and things like that. And I guess just being useful to them in that way. And that made that whole process fun for you. Um, You say you pick 10 or so companies in climate and health tech and Obviously, you're you're picking them somewhat to be coachable, I imagine, um, because you want to be useful and you want to be valuable and all that side of things. But you tell me, those 10 or so companies, what did they have that the other 80 that you saw didn't? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And I think for me, I mean, I, I looked at companies from a variety of different lenses. I mean, part of it as as an angel was about impact. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I was investing, you know, my own money or you know my my husband's and mine hunt money. And there for me, I always went in with the, with the idea, and I think this is wise when you're if you're an angel investor, it's like if if I lose this money, will it will I feel good about having contributed to this cause and yeah. to this founder? And that's very different from if you're a VC investor and you're investing other people's money when really like the financial lens is the most important and the company has to be able to return capital and, and return mm. a certain amount of capital. And of course, then there's impact lenses and such as you could also put on top of that. But ultimately, the financial piece is, is the most important one. And as a, But as an angel, that, that impact piece was very important. And, and part of that is, 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 for me, was working with exceptional founders. Mm. So almost all the companies I invested in also had female founders. Because there is a very like a, a large shortage of uh, investment, um, both angel and, and institutional investment, going into female founders, and and that's something that I felt um, feels strongly is unjust, unjust, and that I could you know make a very small difference in in the way that I deployed my my own capital. I, I did very small tickets from an angel perspective. Mm. So that's where the value add comes into play. Like most people didn't take me on the cap table for the money that I was bringing. Um, uh, it, they, they took me because I could also help in other ways. Um, and so I wouldn't say that I necessarily looked for companies where I could be most helpful, but I do think that that's how I was able to join the rounds of these companies, um, if that makes sense. It does. Um, so a little bit the the other way around. And 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 for me, I, I so I looked for exceptional people that were building businesses in spaces where I um, saw a positive impact, but also where I saw uh, like a real opportunity and, and real innovation. Mm. Right? So I did mostly pre-seed investments, which means that there isn't much data to go by. Um, 
but I I did very much want to see a vision for a company that was a you know unique product in a market where you could actually build a strong business. Why I invested in the companies that I ended up investing in, I would say, yeah, probably fifty percent was founder led. Mm-hmm. Working with exceptional people, backing exceptional people, and and helping them as a pre seed investor. That is, that is ultimately by far the most important thing. Yeah, and I love that framework of as an angel, you are picking causes that you care about because, as you as you rightly said, if you lose that money, you're still going to be proud to have contributed because actually, even if you have contributed to a startup that has tried, that is still progress in that area, particularly if you back yourself to have backed exactly. exceptional founders, as you've just said, you know, if you've, if you've backed really good founders that you know were able to do a very good job in that area, trying to do that thing, that is still progress because those that come afterwards stand on the shoulders, don't they? They know that that was tried before in that way and actually it perhaps needs to be done differently. And I think you can then still feel good about that. And whilst it might be small tickets, well, at the end of the day, you're still supporting and actually your name means something and actually your support means something. And you are just doing well in that area. And it, it, it brings me back to this thing that I, I must say this every week, like, People are so impact driven that come on this podcast, and ultimately that that is the, uh, I guess that that is the virtuous cycle where this usefulness and being valuable leads to success for the company, which then leads to more positive energy and your ability to help more people. And um, yeah, I, I love I just love that framework that actually that even if it doesn't go well, you can write it off as progress. Um, it's why I think. selling the purpose is just such a big part of selling to angel investors. Um, And that storytelling component, my goodness, it's just so important because you must have been, you must have been party to a lot of different pitches and actually those that are going to win you over, they're going to tell a good story, right? A hundred percent. I, as a founder, storytelling is, is probably one of the most important qualities and one that's often underrated by founders themselves, mm. I think. Mm. Um, but so incredibly important. And also down the line as you scale and as you as you raise institutional money, still like the the ability to tell a great story about your company um is what's gonna enable you to to raise uh mm. capital. Um and it's also what's gonna enable you to attract great talent mm. um, and hire senior people that, uh, you know, might leave better, well-paying jobs at more, like at that point, more successful startups to join you on your journey and to help you make that company great. And it's what's going to inspire your team during the rough times mm. um, when maybe you flatlined for, for a few months and or, you know, you had a setback from a product or a regulation perspective. And 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 it's it's what's going to make people follow you instead of quit and, and work extra hard that weekend to get the bug fixed that, that you all discovered. Storytelling as a leader, incredibly important. I can't remember the VC that I had on here that said this, but someone actually said that their, one of their biggest indicators of success was that that they would notice in it in in that in that some of those initial meetings they must have been a series a investor or potentially a seed investor but they said one of the one of the biggest things they'd actually look for is the founder's ability to bring in talent by making them leave an incredibly well-paid secure job to join their ludicrous idea and vision and he, I can't remember. I can't remember who the investor was, but they they did say that that was something that they really admired in a founder of like, well, that's quite an indicator for success if they're able to sell that vision to that person. I just thought it was quite funny. And they're right. Yeah, but it's 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 a uh, it's also an essential part of the mm. job. 
as one of the key key roles of a, of a CEO founder um, is to hire great people and to yeah. hire a great team. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And keep on hiring great team members over time. And that's the challenge that when you're getting to the, uh, the Uber growth level, you know, when you're still managing to hire good people. Wow. Um, hats off to you. Um, I want to talk about Crandom. Got a bit of time left. So, uh, seed in series A, tickets up to 20 million. Um, that's a heck of a seed round, but yeah, seed in series A, I, Tell me about the thesis. Tell me about what you guys invested. I mean, you're taking pension funds, et cetera, as LPs. So you must have quite a bit. I mean, how many funds have you got? What, how are they split? What's the size of them? Tell me all about Crandom. Yeah, it's a great question. So we're on our sixth fund right now. We're actually celebrating our 20-year anniversary this uh, this summer. Um, and and our sixth fund is a, is a half-billion-dollar fund that invests in, in C to Series A software companies, across Europe or European founders abroad. Uh, we also have an opportunity vehicle that we deploy primarily in, in our portfolio companies. So just to, to enable us to support them all the way to IPO. Nice. Um, so that's a kind of separate vehicle on top of our, our, our core fund. Um, and anything software or software enabled really is within our thesis. Um, within healthcare, that means we, we do, you know, software companies such as um, Verta Health, which is a diabetes management app, or software-enabled companies like Cree Livy, um, which is, uh, you know, a full primary care um, technology-enabled healthcare provider. And we tend to be high conviction, low frequency investors. And that means that we don't do many, you know, many investments. Um, and those that we do, we tend to get quite involved. So most of us in the team that write checks do one to three investments a year. Um, on average, probably two. And that means that you really have the time to work with those companies and and help where they want help. And and uh lean in um, during those early years where that type of help really matters. We also have a portfolio team that works with our earlier stage companies and they help on pieces like talent. What should your organization look like in two years and how do we build up to that? And what are the key senior hires along the way and what would their profile look like and who should be like the, the headhunters that help you find them? Who are people that we have in our network that can potentially fit there? We have people in our portfolio team that work on go-to-market, that work on UX, UI, um, design, and data and analytics, like key areas where we feel uh, early stage companies can really benefit from additional support. And I think oftentimes like that personal connection, like working with people in our team on a like day by day basis, and like the support that we give both from our portfolio team as well as from the, mm. you know, hundred plus companies that we've backed in the past, of which one in six is now a unicorn. Um, that's one. That's why <laughs> founders choose to to partner with us because we can actually, we're not silent capital. We we yeah. can actually help you um, be an even more successful company and and at seed and at a stage that matters it does i've got a couple of questions now so <laughs> i believe you <laughs> it's worth saying that but to play devil's advocate so many funds say they're on the side of the founder so many funds say they're added value you've i mean you've given a lot of of reasons why i mean not least the commitment that you make in terms of even the, the the size of the check at the stage that you do, but actually the amount of deals that you each do. And I imagine the amount of deals that you each look after the boards that you sit on, you know, you're, you're probably not stretching yourselves here to actually give yourself the time, which is one thing you've talked about a, a sort of like a talent team that's going to help them with strategic hiring and, and, and things along those lines. Is there anything else that you guys point to as, as sort of being, on the side of the found, I mean, added value. Okay. Yeah. I can, I can see that from everything that you do in the backgrounds that you have, et cetera. But is there anything else that, that points to added value or indeed, is there anything else that suggests you're on the side of the founder? 
But I think you 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 make a very important point is that like a lot of VCs say this. And it's hard for founders, right? Because everyone says it, you know? It is hard. And I think there, like the key key thing and the key advice I would have for founders is to do references. When mm. you are looking, um, and you, when you are in the fortunate position that you can pick which investor you go with, make sure to speak to other founders who have partnered with those funds before. Um, because there is definitely a difference in, in how investors show up and and how they support when things don't go as well. Well, like how much more money they deploy over time and, and under what circumstances, how available they are, how present, what the tone of their involvement is. Um, and I can only speak, you know, from, from my experience, which is when I was deciding which fund to join, I, I did a ton of references mm. and I spoke to loads of founders, um, that, you know, for Cranham that worked with Cranham and that worked with other funds. And I spoke to angels that knew the funds well and other investors that had set on boards, um, with them. I spoke to LPs because this element was incredibly important to me. And mm. I wanted to join a fund that actually lived up to its reputation of being founder of of, of not just its reputation, but that lived up to its promise of being founder friendly. Um, and I found consistently that everyone I spoke to said that, yes, like Cranham actually is founder friendly and they actually are the type of people that they, that they promise to be. And, and this is a team that has the right values. And, and I found in my reference saying that they had and at least were showing the type of value framework that I identified mm. with. Um, and I think that's that's ultimately the most important thing that you can do in, when you're referencing, you know, whether it's for a hire, whether it's for an investor, uh, you know, speaking to people who've worked with them before is going to tell you the real story rather than you know what they might tell you ultimately investors can can tell you that they're that they're adding value and and i think part of part of how they show up and how they interact with you can be taken as a proof point for for how they are to work with long term but i would always reference like actual people that have worked with them over a long period of time mm-hmm. and i'm very proud to say that you know, I really think that Creandum um, is a long-term partner, and and I'm very relieved <laughs> that once I joined the fund, it actually um, the people actually turned out to be this the yeah the same as I had the impression I had gotten from <laughs> the outside in when I was interviewing, and they are truly good people who really care about the the companies we partner with and the founders that we um, that we partner with. And we see these partnerships as a long-term relationship, like a 10-plus um, working relationship that we are there to to support and, and help make, yeah, the founders and the company successful. Is this latest fund, is this a 10-year fund or is this an evergreen fund or how are you structured? Because we know in healthcare, things can take a long time, but I'm interested because it's software. Maybe you guys are still on the clock. It's a great, it's a great question. I mean, officially our funds have, I think, a 10-year like horizon. Yeah. But in practice, a lot of our positions have, have been longer yeah, and, and we are very yeah. fortunate that the investors, that the investors that invest in our fund are patient and yeah. that they know that's we don't sell prematurely and and we we even if a fund goes above its like apartment cycle that that's actually what is ultimately the best financial outcome also for our investors yeah right so for spotify for example we held that for longer and it it turned out really beneficial (laughs) that turned out just fine in our fund (laughs) yeah Nice. And I think we've built that trust with our investors over time that we can hold positions um, yeah. until it's actually in the company's best interest, 
yeah. to exit versus when, you know, fund life cycles um, yeah. end. Working with a VC fund that has um, a steady base of, of investors that they've worked with over several fund cycles is really beneficial from that perspective because we don't have to worry about, um, you know, those type of... Um, yeah, concerns that some other funds might have to. Well, if you're providing good returns, then why on earth would those LPs not just keep investing, exactly. right? So, um, yeah, I suppose the mark of a the mark of a, it's the mark of a fund that can raise 500 million and beyond fund six. Because actually, if you've managed to deliver a decent return to those LPs, they 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 are just getting richer, so they can just keep investing in the fund, and the good times can keep on rolling, right? So. Yes, makes a lot of sense. And as I say, being on Fund 6 certainly points to the success of the previous. Um, a couple of other questions here. So you invest in Seed and you invest in Series A. Now, you're in software or software-enabled technologies, and that's what you're investing in. Are there any specific binary milestones that people need at either seed or series A to approach you at those stages. So do you do you say, for example, if you are looking for series A, you need 2 million revenue. If you are looking for seed, you need these metrics of product market fit. You need are you are you looking for any specific binary points just so if anybody listening is thinking of approaching you, what they uh <laughs> qualify some people out for me. It's <laughs> a great might question. Be um I mean, the easy answer there is no. We don't have binary points of exactly what we're looking for um, at each stage. But the the more nuanced answer is that we do look for certain indications, right? And mm-hmm. at seed stage, that might be, um, you know, we we normally like there to be a product and some some evidence of user love for the product. And that doesn't have to be monetization. Um, That doesn't have to be even the product on the market, but validation of design partners, of like free users, of even like, you know, it could be tests that you've run, pilots that have shown that, hey, there is an appetite for this Mm. and and people like it and and it's different. Um, And so that, that tends to be, what we look for at seed stage, um, there's exceptions there. Like sometimes even at seed or sometimes we invest even earlier at pre-seed and, and there might be nothing yet, but it's just exceptional people that we have met, you know, or worked with in the past yeah. and, and they have an idea that we very much believe in and and then we invest just on the back of that. Um, but yeah, at seed stage, we we like to have some some degree of, of, of validation. It doesn't have to be revenue. Um but validation at a um we do expect there to be some revenue so at a we will be looking for indications that there is product market fit so people are buying your product um and and it doesn't have to be necessarily um in consumer for example buying it could be using the product um but you know over time using it and liking it, right? So then it's it's whether it's a B2B or B2C company, we look at not just growth and usage, but we look at retention. And we look at, you know, oh, like how if people are paying, how much are they paying and how is that changing over time? And and we do like we do tend to see that most companies at A stage have between say one to three million of annualized revenues. And then it doesn't necessarily mean like you don't have to wait until you have three million revenues to to go and raise an A round. I mean at that point it's more the the function like your revenues are more gonna determine maybe the multiple and the valuation that you can raise at. But you want to go to market when you have those proof words around product market fit. When you when you see that, you know, users or whether they be, you know, companies or organizations or individuals are using your product, you're growing well, um, and you you have some idea of what it's like how you can scale the 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 product that you have currently out there. Um 
and and then you know if if an investor adds more you know gives you more money how are you going to deploy that and and ideally you'd have some some degree of, of scalability as in like you you have tested different sales approaches and you know what works you've just tested some marketing approaches and you know um you know what works for you and what doesn't um and you have maybe plans of to expand into different geographies um etc etc nice i love that phrase evidence of user love for the product i think that's uh i think that's a wonderful phrase jim before i let you go i mentioned earlier that obviously investors pick the world you live in next and as an angel investor and as part of random certain and you know the the amount of capital behind you there there's an element of you looking at the world ahead here and you seeing the types of companies coming to you the ones you're choosing to invest in the ones you're actually choosing not to invest in i'm interested from a health tech and healthcare perspective what is the world that you see that we live in next? What companies are you saying yes to? What companies are you saying no to? What does that next world look like, do you think? Yeah, great question. I I, I think you touched on this at the beginning, but one of the key um, trends that we believe in in healthcare is that there will be more and more um, digital solutions and digital clinical solutions and that AI will also enable um, a lot more innovation when it comes to um, yeah the healthcare space in the next few years um, whether that be from an, an enablement of healthcare practitioners to like actual clinical um, diagnosis and 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 um, clinical analysis around different uh you know, different parts of the healthcare system um and and that's ultimately that rate of innovation mm. will be much faster than it has been in the past 10, so you're talking years. about software as a medical device stuff so you're really thinking about like the software behind some of the diagnostics and I mean that's part of it right we think so like uh, we think ai will will also help in, in a lot of other fields around, you know, enabling practitioners and en enabling mm. um, healthcare professionals. Software as a medical device is definitely a really big one. I mean, one of the, the companies that I partner with, Scarlett, is a continuous compliance company for, for healthcare, um, specifically for, for software um, medical ah, devices. Okay. And, and their, their dream of the future, which I like very much ascribe to is is that software companies should be and medical software companies should be able to deploy um, updates to their to their systems and their algorithms as quickly as as other tech companies. So that's the the patient and and the practitioners that they um, enable are getting the fastest rate of of innovation, um, all like completely, you know approved by by our uh, regulators in a in a much quicker way um and that's definitely um yeah a future that we uh, would love to live in as a as an investor in healthcare cool so Gemma, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on thank you so much for joining me i think your your background is i think as i said before like a, a who's who or certainly a, a where to go for all of your education uh, and indeed your career from yale to insead to mckinsey to big startups like uber and elder and now angel investing and onto crandom i think it's it's a heck of a career you put together um and you guys are making some incredible impact. I, I think it would be really interesting, I think, for people listening to have a look at Crandom's um, portfolio and see what you guys are investing in. I'm certainly going to keep an eye on what you're investing in because I think you have got, well, you've got half a million behind you with this fund. And yeah, just very interested to see where it goes. Those big seed rounds, those big Series A rounds with, you know, the second, third time founders that you guys might come across. I think they're, it's a super exciting 
place to look at. I think there's lots of people that have been in, in different sectors. I mean, I know you guys cover cross-sector, but there's definitely founders that have been cross-sector that are coming over to health tech after exiting somewhere else and building some really interesting stuff. And I think, yeah, you guys are definitely going to be seeing a lot of that. So um, yeah, delighted to have you on. Thank you so much for telling your story. And for those people listening um, that want to get in touch with you or Creandum, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? Yeah, great question. And thanks for having me. I really enjoyed your conversation. The best way to get in touch um, is is to email me. I'm Gemma at Crandom.com. And you can also follow me on, on Twitter. Um, I'm just uh, at Gemma Blumen. Uh, but uh, email is by far the best way. I'm not great at, at LinkedIn. Uh, I get so many requests that I unfortunately don't, don't have to time always to, to go through them. So email is a And you're at Bits and Pretzels in Munich, right? Yes, I will be speaking at Bits and Pretzels, the the healthcare conference in a few weeks. Uh, I think it's the 21st of of June, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So that should be interesting as well, hoping to meet a lot of healthcare founders and, and fellow investors there. Awesome. May see you there, Gemma. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.